right, that was kind of dramatic, wasn't it? Woo! Get my heart stirring. All right, new, uh, a new sermon bumper means a new sermon series. Uh, so grab your Bibles uh, and turn to the book of Exodus. If you're new to your Bible, Exodus is right up there at the beginning. And uh, put your finger at Exodus 1. I'm going to talk a little bit, and then we're going to... Um, be in the first chapter for just a few minutes. Today is going to be sort of a roadmap over the, the series, how we're going to approach it. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, down the center column of seats are a couple of Bibles. You can take one and, and grab it and using it as we're working through the scriptures. And as you're getting set, I'm going to pray and then we're going to get going. Father, we're grateful for uh, this day and the gathering of your church. And uh, Lord, our prayer is a, a simple one. Uh, we're here because we want to be. We're here because we need you, and we confess that. And so, God, we pray that uh, that we would sense that we are in your presence, God, that we would hear your voice, God, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, all that we should and honestly need to hear from your word today. God, we pray, as Isaiah rightly says in Isaiah 55, that your word would not return void, that it would have the intended purpose uh, in our hearts, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would incline us by your spirit to Jesus, and that the gospel would change us. And that's our prayer today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so new sermon series. We're going to spend the next several months, really almost leading up to Christmas, uh, looking at the story of, of Exodus, walking through this Old Testament book. Many of you have read the book of Exodus. So this is not an unfamiliar story to you. And if you haven't read Exodus, if you're a young kid here and you've never read Exodus, you've probably, you've probably seen the movie, right? Some of you in the room are actually old enough, like me, to remember like the 1950s version uh, with Charlton Heston. Like, I see somebody like Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments. I mean, if you, if you have not seen that, you need to go back and, and watch that. You can probably Netflix it or you can probably YouTube it at this point. So... Pretty, uh, pretty accurate depiction of the story of Exodus. And if you're a parent with kids, then you probably have, uh, have uh, availed your kids to the opportunity to see uh, the old DreamWorks classic at this point, The Prince of Egypt. All right, so some of you have seen that. And then there's probably a few of you that are suckers and got sucked into uh, the newest uh, Hollywood rendition of a book of the Bible. Uh, it, uh, it's Exodus, Gods and Kings. Any of y'all seen that one? All right, so I've not seen the entire movie, but every time it comes on, almost like the, the Hollywood version of Noah, I, I mean, I usually take a, a few moments and look at it, and you'd think that Hollywood would get this right, that they'd figure this out at some point. If you just stick to the script, Hollywood, then Christians would come out in droves, and we would support these kind of movies, but, uh, but Exodus, Gods and Kings did not do that. They, they, they skipped the script. They did not <laughs> refer to the Bible. God in this movie is a young kid. He's angry, and he berates Moses throughout the whole movie, and, and, and it goes down from there. And so if you haven't seen it, don't worry about it. You haven't missed anything. But the point is either, we've either read Exodus or we have, um, we've seen the movie, and so we're familiar with the storyline. Today is going to be kind of a roadmap of where we're going with this book of the Bible. If you haven't noticed, Exodus is a big book. It's 40 chapters, and our, our tradition here at the transit is really to, to take a book of the Bible and go verse by verse, line by line, all the way through it from beginning to end. And if we did that with Exodus, we would be in Exodus for three or so years. And the, the thing, I mean, you've seen it with Carlton Anthony. 
Most of y'all aren't even here for a year or so. So we're not going to do that. Uh, you'll see our preaching team take this book, and we're going to go, we're going to break it down into sections and lumps of sections and chapters. We're going to pull out specific themes that uh, we think that we need to get from the book as we are uh, working through it. If I were to take the book of Exodus and give it a one-word theme, uh, the word I would give it would be redemption. And so specifically, we're going to look through, look at this book of the Bible through the lens of, of redemption. The Exodus story is a story of redemption. And so we're going to look at Exodus through this, this particular lens. We're going to see God redeeming his people out of slavery in Egypt. And, but more importantly, what we want to extract from this story is not how God redeems the Israelites 3,500, 4,000 years ago. We want to particularly uh, relate that to how God redeems us today, you and me. And so the story of Exodus is a nation of people that are slaves in Egypt, and God redeems them by his mighty hand from that slavery. And that word slavery trips us up a little bit because of, in our American context, we have this, I mean, this kind of definite idea of what slavery is. And to be sure, the Israelites were in slavery. There are some that would uh, dismiss that, you know, well, that's not really slavery that happens today, but all you have to do is peel back the onion a little bit and notice that, I mean, around the world, there are all kinds of slavery. There are actually people who today are persecuted, um, much like the transatlantic slave trade, that they're oppressed and they have no rights to themselves and they are subjected to people uh, who are doing bad things to them. That happens in our world today. That happens in America. Of course, we are very well aware of the sex slave trade. In fact, one of our elders, Saji Matthew, is uh, in New Orleans right now uh, preaching a sermon on, uh, for IJM's Freedom, uh, Freedom Sunday uh, in regards to that. Uh, International Justice Mission, that's what they do. Around the world, they are trying to restore justices to people who are persecuted and oppressed to con- uh, uh, to uh, include those people who are in various forms of slavery. But one of, the, one of the ways that we can talk about slavery that I think sometimes we omit is the slavery that comes from the, uh, the, the, the sin issues of our own lives. Have you ever thought of your sin as you be in, being enslaved to the things that are around you? It's the sin issue that you keep going back to, that thing that you can't overcome, although you want to, but have no power in yourself to, to stop doing it. And perhaps you don't even recognize it. Perhaps you don't want to admit it. I, you know, I'm kind of enslaved to ice cream. And if you ask me if I'm enslaved to ice cream, I was like, heck no. I just like ice cream. But if you ask my wife, she'd say, yeah, that's your slave. Or he's my slave. <laughs> However you want to say that. But what we're hoping that this sermon series would point out are some of the sin habits that we ourselves have, things that we can't give up, things that uh, really are enslaving us. And we're going to take a little bit of time unpacking that in in some detail. But the highlight isn't going to be the things that are enslaving you. It's going to be this gigantic, awesome, powerful God that brings us freedom. That's the goal in this in this series. Uh, accompanying this series, we're going to be uh, using a book called Redemption. Uh, Nick made mention of this last week. It's by a former Mars Hill pastor, Mike Wilkerson. He's now an Episcopal priest. Uh, and the, the subtitle is Free by Jesus from the Idols We Worship and the Wounds We Carry. This is a counseling kind of book. 
Uh, my book is all tattered and torn because I've read it four times already. I'm on my fifth time reading it as we are working through this series. If you were to read that book, and I am recommending that some of you buy this book and actually read it, it's a, not only a counseling kind of a book, it's a hard read. It's a hard read not because just because the, the concepts in the book are hard to understand. It's a hard read because it's a book that talks about real people with real lives, with real issues, and uh, Mike Wilson, Mark Wilkerson is taking this, this picture of, of, of Israel being slave, uh, uh, enslaved and then released from bondage of slavery, the, basically the Exodus story, and applying it to the lives of people that have various issues and showing how God redeems them. And so you'll see us uh, basically unpack the whole story of Exodus, but at points we're going to take very specific direction from chapters of this book that talk about um, the issues that people have in their lives. And in a group of this size, some of you would read this book, and because of the way that your life has gone, you might say, oh, wow, I can't even imagine somebody having an issue like that. But they act the, the same, at the same time, there's some of you here that will, that will read stories in this book and that things we'll talk about as we're preaching, and I mean, immediately you'll identify. You'll say, man, that story is my story. And if you're honest with yourself, some of you not only will admit, you know, that story is my story, but I'm having problems right now of seeing how God is going to redeem me because that story is my story and I can't even forgive myself. And so we want to dive into some of those issues. So as we're surveying the book of Exodus, the entire book, we will also take key things from this book, Redemption by Mike Wilkerson. Along with that, a couple weeks from now, we're going to give you an opportunity to join us in what we're going to call Redemption Group. So we're going to take a group of men and a group of women, obviously people who are volunteering to do this, and we're going to use this book to dive deep into some of the themes of the book. And the Redemption Group will be smaller, more intimate settings. It'll be an opportunity for those of you that say, I have a habitual issue, a habitual sin issue, uh, of something that was done to me or something that I've done and I just can't get over the guilt of it. I'm living with shame or there's just some things, some habits that I have that I need help unpacking and God redeeming it for me. So this is a kind of kind of group that we're forming. And uh, and with that, uh, you'll get a chance with uh, in, a, in an intimate setting with a, a few people to walk through that issue. The goal of re the redemption group would be for you to be known and for other people to know you. Uh, counselors and, and, and experts in this field would tell us that one of the ways that uh, obviously the gospel helps us get over our guilt, sometimes we hold on to guilt because we simply have not surrendered it to Jesus who died for your sin. But in, when, it, when it comes to shame, a lot of times what breaks the shame cycle is actually speaking it. It's like, you know what, this was done to me or I did this. It's bringing it into light. Why? Because that's what God does with our lives. He takes us out of the domain of darkness and brings us into the light of the kingdom of God, right? That, that reduces the effect of shame on you. And when you share the sin issues of your life with other people, it, it, it almost makes the shame go away, along with a little help from the gospel. Um, so you'll hear us talking about that over the next couple of weeks and inviting those of you uh, that have habitual sin issues uh, to walk with us in that. We're going to go deeper. Uh, it'll be much deeper than a typical community group would ever go in any topic. It'll be a group for men, a group for women, and this is the way the community, the, the redemption group will work. What's said in the, in the redemption group stays in the redemption group. You can't even tell your wife 
or your spouse. I mean, it's that kind of closure, uh, that kind of close-in intimacy that we want to help people. It's people walking alongside other people who also need redemption. So, Transit Church, welcome to the book of Exodus. It's like, I didn't know we were going to talk about this. Like, yeah. Um, so a little bit about this book. This is the second book of the Bible. It's the second book of the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch being the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The author is attributed to Moses, all those scholars would tell us that there's parts of it that talk about Moses and his death that he couldn't have written, and that's actually true. But for the most part, we believe that Moses did write portions of, uh, or at least the majority of this particular book. We'll see God use Moses as his chosen servant, and he will lead Israel out of slavery. Moses' ministry has been dated roughly from about 1500 B.C. to 1300 B.C. So that's 1500 years at least before Jesus comes on the scene. So I tell you that because just to give you a frame of reference. So we're 2000 years away from Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting. Right. So that means these words were written. These events in Exodus happened at least 3500 years ago, probably more so around 4000 years or so ago. I'm convinced that to have a good grasp of the story of Exodus, you have to have at least a a common sense knowledge of what happens in Genesis. Genesis is like the the prequel to to Exodus. It's like like you going to a movie that's like part two or three. It's like the Star Wars trilogy. Most of those movies are I mean, they can be standalones, but you've, I mean, if, if you didn't see the previous movies, you're missing a lot of like foundational information. That's what Genesis is for the book of Exodus. And so, honestly, this week, if you have time, you need to go do some review in the book of Genesis because we're just going to like dive in to Exodus. And there's some things that happen in Genesis that you might want to know about. Uh, so that you have a frame of reference for what we're going to talk about. But if I could give you a Cliff Notes view of Genesis, here's what I would say. I'd say, firstly, Genesis is the foundational story of God and his relationship with people that he's calling to himself. And the first thing that God does in Genesis is he alerts us that he is the creator God. How did God start everything? He spoke it into existence. Things that had no existence whatsoever, he created them. He created something out of nothing. And so we firstly come to, to know about our world and about our God from Genesis. And God tells us that his relationship to us is as creator God. We see some very foundational doctrines in theology in Genesis that run all the way through the Bible. One of those is that God is creator. We find out the doctrine of God in Genesis, that God is all-powerful, that he knows everything, that he sees everything, that God didn't just wind the earth up and then cause creation to happen and then remove himself, but God is present and that he is near. We find that out in Genesis. We find about the doctrine of sin in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, after God made this world and pronounced it very good, what happens? Adam and Eve disobey God, doing what he said not to do, and sin happens. Right on the back, uh, the, the heels of that sin happening, though, we find out the doctrine of grace and atonement. God favors Adam and Eve. He gives them what they don't deserve. What does he do? He obviously forgives them of their sin. He kills an animal. We see atonement, blood being used to uh, 
take away someone's sin. He clothes them with the, 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 the skin of those animals. And we see, uh, really for the first time, uh, reconciliation happening. What happens when people sin and, and, and to restore the relationship? Uh, God has to um, uh, exert some kind of forgiveness, and obviously there's blood involved. We see that happening. We see also the covenant that God is a God, again, that despite our sin and our sinfulness, he, just, he says, you know, I want to be near you. And uh, regardless of how you treat me and your behavior towards me, I'm going to love you with an everlasting love. We see that in Genesis. One of the other great things that we see in Genesis is a major focus on the patriarchs. And so we learn in Genesis that uh, God has started this generation of people who are called after his name. And so he calls Abraham, he calls Isaac, and he calls Jacob. And, uh, and the generations that come from them become the people of God. And so uh, a lot of times we think that it's not until Jesus dies and resurrects, ascends to heaven, and then he commissions the apostles. Pentecost happens, and they pronounce that, that you know, all right, you're a church now. And we see the church flourish in the, in the known world at that point. Well, scholars would also tell us that, you know what, there's always been the existence of a church all the way back since Adam and Eve were on the planet. Particularly, God is, is calling a church, a people called after his name through the generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Another point that I would make that Genesis um, brings out about the patriarchs, you know, it's, it's easy for us to glorify them. We, we make them our examples. They are examples of faith and of following God and of doing what God says to do. But if you would just look, look, just like peek under these people's lives just a little bit, you figure out, man, these people are messed up, right? They've got some shady character. Abraham was a, a, a man of faith, but guess what? He lied, lied about his wife twice. Isaac did the same thing. Jacob, his name is Schemer, right? And, and he did some, go back to our sermon series that we did in the lessons of Jacob uh, last year, and you figure out the guy was true to his name. He was a deceiver times 10. And so one of the things that we learn in Genesis about the patriarchs and really about even the people that God uses, we learn about total depravity. It's not that we aren't as bad as we could be, but it's in us to do bad. And there's nothing good in us that merits God's favor. And so what does God have to do? God has to gift us the favor that we, that we get from him. We see that in Genesis. These uh, patriarchs' lives weren't perfect. I mean, their families were mess upon mess. And yet, here's the unique thing about the patriarchs. God calls them, he chooses them, and God shows off his own glory through their mess. And, and so if you're sitting here and listening to me, this should give you a little hope. Why? Because when, you, when it feels like your life is messy, like we're going to talk about from some of the, the topics that come up as God uh, saves Israel out of their slavery, I mean, it, it should give you hope that God can, through the, the mess of your life, redeem you as well. Okay, so the end of Genesis is key. All right, and so if you're going to read anything this week in preparation for just getting into Exodus, uh, the story that, uh, that Moses tells towards the end of Genesis is, is really important. And as the story goes, Abraham, Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named, named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, and the youngest of those sons was named Joseph, and Joseph was the favorite son. Genesis plays out this years-long conflict between Joseph and his older brothers. In fact, the, the older brothers kind of despised Joseph. 
And they don't really just despise Joseph. They despise the fact that their father in his old age favored Joseph. Now, Joseph had some special things about him. He could tell dreams, and he was obviously a little wise. God had gifted him purposely because of the, the plan of his life. But his brothers, I mean, they took offense at that, which, which reminds you of, I mean, civil, civil, uh, sibling rivalries, like, like no joke, right? I mean, if you got a sibling, you know, like sometimes you love them, but a lot of times you hate them. And so there was a lot of hate amongst these 12 brothers. Actually, there's a sister in there, too. Uh, and it plays out so much so that the brothers decide they conspire to to kill Joseph. Thank God for Reuben, the oldest brother that that sort of thwarts that plan. Uh, they don't kill him, but they do put him in a pit and they end up selling him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. But uh, the, the plan of God cannot be thwarted. And so what we see happening in Joseph's life is that he is indeed put in slavery, but immediately God begins to, to bless him. And even in a prison, um, God uses him to interpret dreams, and God uses the, the wisdom that he's given to Joseph to, to elevate him to, to, to positions uh, outside of the prison. Eventually, he rises to a place of power. Um, right, I mean, the second in command in all of Egypt, less than nobody except uh, for Pharaoh himself. Um, one of the things to note about Joseph's life is that God doesn't necessarily deliver him quickly. And one of the things that we'll see in this whole redemption story is that uh, alongside this picture of God saving us is the fact that God allows us to suffer. And so we see true suffering in Joseph's life. Why did Joseph suffer? Because God allowed it. And so if you can handle those two things together, even in your own life, that, that, that God really aims to redeem me and make all the wrong things right in my life through the person and work of Jesus, at the same time, God does all, doesn't always immediately just like uh, swoop in and grab us out of the suffering and even the dangers of our life. We'll see that play out in Exodus. And so Joseph experiences suffering. In fact, um, all of the known world would experience suffering. There's a worldwide, at least an Egyptian-wide famine. This famine ravages the land. God uses Joseph again to save the world. He gives him uh, just a, a, a revelation of what to do to save the world. And the world then comes to Egypt uh, to, to, to gain provisions to survive this famine. Joseph's family comes from Canaan to Egypt, and uh, they're seeking provisions. And amazingly enough, Joseph runs into his brothers again after all these years, and seeing them, he actually plays with, my little, plays with their head a little bit, but he forgives them. Can you believe that? I mean, think of the civil sibling rivalries that you might have with your older or younger siblings. You know, the sometimes love, a lot of times like, man, I can't stand you. And imagine your siblings selling you into like, straight-up slavery, and you meeting up with them after your freedom is exacted, and you forgive them. So we'll see forgiveness and reconciliation and even redemption happening in this book. And so eventually the entire clan of Joseph, of Jacob's family, comes into Egypt, and that gets us into Exodus. And so Genesis ends, if you turn to like the last chapter of Genesis, here are the words that we read. The house of Jacob uh, stays in Egypt. Joseph stays in Egypt until his death at 110 years. But what we see at the end of Joseph's life is Joseph tells his family, all right, don't leave my bones here in Egypt. When you leave Egypt, which, oh, by the way, should be very soon, take my bones and bring them back into Canaan, into the promised land that God has prepared for us. And so Joseph actually intended and thought that someday his 
his family, the nation of Israel, would leave Egypt and go back into Canaan, the land that God had intended for them to be in. Unfortunately, that did not happen. Look at Exodus 1.1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, with his household. And then skip down to verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. They never left. They were supposed to leave, and they did not leave. In fact, they should have left at some point, but they stayed to the tune of 430 years. That's what Exodus 1 through 7 is trying to tell us. It's summarizing all of Genesis for us, telling us, all right, these are the people that came out of Canaan, ended up in Egypt, and oh, by the way, they got comfortable. God blessed them. He caused them to multiply. The the Genesis mandate of being fruitful and multiplied, they were really good at that. But the problem was they should have left Egypt. They should have left selectively. They should have left willfully, but they got comfortable. They got comfortable in whatever life was like for them in Egypt. Think about that. How many times have you done that? Don't we sometimes just get comfortable with life that we sort of have a discernment that God wants us to do something or maybe just, you know, maybe just something practical. You know what? I really should get up and do this or I really should start this. But if we do that, that would interrupt our comfortability about life. And unfortunately, we do that about our sin as well. Sometimes we just ease into um, the issues of sin. We get comfortable to the point where we don't even call the things that the Bible would call sin. We don't call it sin anymore. And, and that, I would tell you, is one, uh, yet another goal of this series in Exodus. We want to be able to, to be made aware of those areas of our life that, that if we read the Bible, the Bible would call it sinful, but we don't call it that anymore. We've just become too comfortable in it. We've become comfortable to to live in it. Sometimes either just the things that we say, you know, we have loose mouths. Sometimes it's the things that we do, things that if we would just look at the Bible a little bit, the Bible would suggest that, you know, you probably shouldn't be doing that. And I think that's what happens to the Israelites. The famine was over. They got comfortable. They were so comfortable, they forgot that Egypt was not the place that God would have them stay for an extended amount of time. And yet they stayed. So the lesson is, obviously, don't get comfortable. Commentators agree that this book of Exodus is the most significant historical and theological event in the entire Old Testament. So when I say that, I mean this this idea, this event of God rescuing this nation of people out of slavery and into uh, eventually his his promised land. But the the book of Exodus, the story of Exodus, is not just that. Uh, It's a book of of layers. And of of course, that first layer is a little bit of history. It's a lot of archaeology. But there's there's more. And and here's what the more is. It's It's this mirror image of their story is our story. And so as we walk through the book of Exodus, you should pay attention to the the history. You should at least glean from the archaeological, uh, historical nature of of the book of Exodus. Obviously, there's theological points for us to to glean here that pass all the way through the Bible. But more importantly, we're supposed to see that the picture of their redemption is the picture of, of our redemption. And it's there purposefully. 
that, that this story of, of them being redeemed by God is a story that's, that's, that's mirrored in the work and the person of Jesus as he goes to the cross and dies in our place for our sin. And so as we talk about a group of people in bondage, that really is the story of most of us um, pre-coming to Christ. And if you, have, if you would confess today that you have not yet made any kind of profession of faith in Jesus, then the Bible would tell us that you actually still are in bondage to your sins. And so these people were enslaved and in bondage to sin. And at some point, hopefully like you have, they realized they needed a redeemer. They needed a Moses-like figure, a, a, a Jesus in their life who would come and save them from their sins and from all those things that they weren't powerful in enough in enough themselves to save themselves from. And then when we see the Red Sea crossing, or rather the, the plagues in chapter 7 through 10, that can be likened to the visible hand of God moving in our lives. And of course, the climax of that event was... Um, was this, this, this beautiful picture of God showing himself to be the Passover lamb and Jesus that lays his life down for us on the cross. And then we see the Red Sea crossing in chapter 14. This is a picture of God saving us. This is literally the, the you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. In Israel's case, it was they had a sea on one side and they had a great army on the other. And for us, it's, it's, it's likening you having some great obstacle in your life that you can't overcome, that you can't go around, that you can't go over, and whatever the enemy of your soul is on the other side. And if you don't surrender yourself or if you don't have someone to come and help you, to rescue you, you're going to die a great death. And so what does God do? He swoops in and he comes and he delivers us. But more than that, he comes in a situation where we can't do anything, and he says, why don't you just sit, watch, and wait? Wait for my deliverance. And what does God do for Israel? He parts the Red Sea. He takes them across that dry ground. He shuts the sea. He demolishes Pharaoh's army. And in the midst of that, they're saved. And it's the same thing in the redemption of our lives. We are saved. But then what does God do? After he saves us through the Red Sea, he brings us into the wilderness. And the wilderness is, is like hard ground. It's a place where we're called to put our trust in God to be able to get through it. And we learn to live a life in a new normal. Now, y'all are military folk, and so every two or three years, y'all are all, you're always getting like resettled to a new normal. But most of the people in the rest of the world, they don't like having to get used to a new normal, right? It's, it's just not in them to do it. We don't like it. And when we are forced to get used to a new normal, we grumble and we complain about how hard life is. We gripe about not having enough. Remember that with Israel? We don't like God's provision through manna. It's like craving a steak and getting a cracker. <laughs> and again, God invites us to learn to live by trusting in him. And then we have some really bad moments. And I don't know about you, but all of us have really bad moments. And in those moments, we make a golden calf. And what happens in those moments is we turn back to the idols of our lives. We turn back to Egypt. We turn back to those things that were a pleasure that we've realized that we don't need and shouldn't have. And we convince ourselves, you know what? I got to have this. And we forsake what we know to be right. And we turn around and we go get it. And that happens to all of us. We actually go back to Egypt, to the things, those things that bring us pleasure. And, and here's where uh, the, the, the story turns positive. 
through all of this, we learn that we have a covenant-keeping God. A covenant-keeping God that despite how we treat him, despite even our behavior of disobedience and doing what we know to be wrong in his sight, that he forgives us, he reconciles us, he loves us, he does deny, d- deny us, and he redeems us. And so this, folks, is a picture of the story of Exodus. And I, would, I hope you can start to formulate this picture. It's not just a story. It's, it's their story, but it's our story. It's the story of, of God's faithful redemption in our lives. And so turn to, uh, again, Exodus chapter 1. I'm not going to unpack, unpack this in any great detail. I'm actually going to come back next week. And again, we're going to take a, this huge sweeping look at chapters 1 and half of chapter 2 next week. But just uh, to get our eyes in the scriptures a little bit, chapter 1 breaks down into three sections. First 1 through 7, we learn in these first few verses how Israel got to Egypt. Okay, And so that really is a rehearsing of all that happens in the latter half of, 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 uh, of Genesis. The second section is verses 8 through 14. We see a group of people in slavery, Israel enslaved to the Egyptians. And then, I mean, there's some evil that happens in the latter half of chapter 1, verses 15 to 22. We'll see an attempted genocide of people as Pharaoh tries to, to interrupt this, this like fast multiplication of the people of, of Israel. He's going to try and extinguish an entire generation. So I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 22 just to get uh, where our appetite for what's to come in the book of Genesis, and then we're going to return to this idea of redemption. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, uh, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. Uh, The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt uh, well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Verse 21, And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, 
but you shall let every daughter live, the word of the Lord. So, I mean, there's a lot of detail there. We're going to cover that in the first half of chapter 2 as we uh, come back and and sort of start unpacking this book of the Bible and, again, this story of redemption uh, next week. Here's where I want to finish. I want to finish on the, the topic of redemption. I've said that word probably 50 times already, but some of you are here and you're like, well, I mean, what is redemption? Like, can you, like, explain it to me? Can you just define it? So let's do that. I'm using Webster's Dictionary 1828, which is a great, a great resource for, uh, for you online to get definitions, uh, especially in regards to what the Bible says about different words. Um, and here's what uh, Webster's Dictionary 1828.com says about the word redemption. Three definitions for you. The first is redemption is an act of procuring, procuring, the deliverance of persons or things from the possession and power of captors by the payment of an equivalent. It's ransom or release. That's a lot of words, but what the dictionary writer is saying, whoever that dictionary writer is, is they're describing what slavery looks like. It's, it's, it's someone being possessed by someone to the point that they can't get themselves out of that possession, and then someone comes and ransoms them or releases them. And so it gives us this picture of something, someone in slavery and them being delivered. Beautiful definition. Here's another definition. Uh, redemption is deliverance from bondage, distress, or from liability to any evil or forfeiture, either by money, labor, or by other means. And so I, if you're looking at specific words, particularly bondage and stress, evil, forfeiture, I mean, those are, those are kind of hard words, but what this definition is alluding to is, is, is really is, is you're being relieved of the stress and anxiety of your life. And when I read this, I think, man, I mean, who couldn't use a little bit of redemption? I mean, many of you might not confess to being in bondage, although many of us are. I mean, we're just enslaved by sin, and sometimes we don't even know it, or we wouldn't want to admit it. But there's not many of you in here that should shy away from actually confessing, you know what, I got a little bit of distress in my life. You know what, I'm stressed up to here with my kids, or with life, or with work, or my neighbor, you know, all kinds of things, all right? And so this definition of redemption says that uh, God redeems us even from that, from the stresses and anxiety of our life. And thirdly, in theology, uh, here's what redemption is. It's the purchase of God's favor by the death and sufferings of Christ, the ransom or deliverance of sinners from the bondage of sin and the penalties of God's violated law by the atonement of Christ. And so this third picture is ultimately um, the picture of redemption. What is it? It's what Jesus does for you on the cross, right? He dies in your place for your sin. He spills his blood. That's the price that's been paid for you. He's redeemed you in this way. Two other scriptures for you. Ephesians 1, chapter 7. Paul writes, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Paul is giving us scripturally where our redemption comes from. Where does it come from? It comes in, in him. See the first two words? What's in him? It comes in Jesus by what he does, the, the person and the work of Jesus. The, the focus here is, is not just deliverance, it's the freedom that deliverance gives us. It's a freedom from, again, the bondages of our lives, those things that have enslaved us. It's a freedom from those things that cause us distress. And um, the emphasis is it's in him. It's at the foot of Jesus' cross. Jesus pays the price 
of his blood for our redemption. Paul also says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, he, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so in this definition that Paul uses in, to the church at Colossae, the focus is again on freedom, that redemption brings us freedom in all those areas in your life that you aren't quite so free. Again, whether you know it or whether you would admit it. And these are just beautiful words. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's being pulled out of the darkness of everything and, and the evil that everything that slavery is and being brought into the light of, of, of Jesus Christ and the freedom that only he can give. And again, it's almost like um, ridding yourself of the shame of things that have been done to you and those things that you have selectively chosen to do. When we bring those things into the light, when we admit it, when we confess it, when we own up to it, we bring it to the light, it dissipates. There's no darkness that can survive the light of the knowledge of Christ. That's what these verses here are telling us. And so that in a nutshell, uh, Transit Church is where we're headed in the book of Exodus. And I, I, I mean, this is going to be a good series for us. And here's the message. God redeems his people. It's not you trying to live your best life now. It's not you trying to make yourself right and do it in your own strength. It's not you putting on a smile and faking it till you make it. It's not you trying to be good, do good, to live better. It's not you sucking it up so no, pe no, no one else will know that you're suffering on the inside. It's not you trying to, in your own strength, stop doing things, but it's submitting those things that are enslaving us, Ever, however small, however large, to the one that has the power to deal with it and free us from those things. Redemption is about us gaining freedom in Christ, the freedom that we all need comes from him. Last, let me give you a quick outline. This is what it's going to look like for us to get through this book. Firstly, chapters 1 through 2, we're going to cover most of this next week. Uh, God hears and remembers his covenant. And so we open the pages of Exodus, and what do we immediately see? We see the Israelites in bondage. They're in Egypt, and we'll find out they've been there for some 430 years, partly by God's own doing. This next section, chapters 3 through 4, God comes down and calls his deliverer. We get to meet Moses, and we'll see Moses from birth all the way at this, in, these, in these chapters until he's 80 years old. And what does God do? God calls him. He commissions him to go and lead a nation out of slavery. Chapters 4 through 7, God is going to redeem his people through his promise. We're going to see Moses go and stand before the most powerful person on the planet at that time. He's going to stand before Pharaoh, and he's going to echo these famous words. What are those words? Let my people go. And what is Pharaoh going to say? No. <laughs> No. And as a result, God's going to open up a can of you know what in verses seven through 10. God is going to redeem his people through the plagues. And the plagues are some of the grandest miracles that that a generation of people have ever seen. The plagues are God in his immense power, displaying that power. The plagues are God basically putting himself in a ring with all the Egyptian gods and says, yep, I'm stronger than the God of the Nile. Yep, I'm stronger than your God of the sun. Yep, I'm stronger than all these other gods that you're serving. Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm stronger than Pharaoh himself, who thinks 
He's a God. And ultimately, God is going to overpower them, systematically undo every one of Egypt's gods to free his people uh, from the grips of slavery. And he's going to do that with this culminating plate that's going to lead to the death of the firstborn, which leads us to chapters 11 through 13. God redeems his people through the Passover. The Passover is one of the most important pictures in all the Bible. It's where God shows us that redemption happens when blood is shed. And so we're going to see an innocent lamb killed and its blood smeared on the doors of the Israelite homes. And when God sees that blood, what's he going to do? He's going to pass over that home and they're going to be saved. Chapters 13 through 15, God redeems his people through his power. And so what does God do? He leads Israel out of Egypt. They part, he parts the Red Sea. They go through miraculously. And at the conclusion of that, um, they're a free nation. Unfortunately, they, to, to get to, the, to freedom, they have to go through that rock and a hard place. They've got the sea on one side, Pharaoh's army on the other. And I mean, they're crying, uncle, Lord, save us. And God, by his mighty hand, actually does save them. Chapters 15 through 18, God leads his people. How does he lead them? He leads them by uh, a cloud by day, fire by night, and Unfortunately, he leads them into the wilderness. That, that there's years of, of toiling in the wilderness, a journey that takes us all the way through the end of the book. They're going to spend time in a very difficult place. And really, the wilderness, we should see it as God's lab. It's where he works in courage and confidence. And he works out sin in us and works in his redemption. He's going to show them that God, that he is the God of the just enough. They don't need extra. They don't need the leeks and the onions and the meat pots of Egypt. All they need is him. It's going to take them a little bit of time to get to know, for them to, 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 to agree to that. He gives them manna. He feeds them, takes care of them, um, but not in a way that their lives are going to reflect any rose-colored past. They're going to have difficulty. And lastly, God is going to instruct his people through three things. The Ten Commandments, verses 19 through 20. The covenant, verses 20 through 24, where God is going to give them laws that govern them. God is going to come alongside them and say, you know what? I love you, but my relationship with you has some rules to it. This is how you deal with me relationally. This is how you worship me. And lastly, he's going to instruct his people through the tabernacle. From chapter 24 all the way through the end of Genesis is God giving Israel the blueprints of a tent. And that's when some of you are going to like, close your bubbles, like, you know what? I can't read this. I, I mean, you know you're laughing because I'm being honest, right? But here's where this, the blueprints for the t- this tent comes in. It's, it's God giving Israel the exact details of what it looks like for him to dwell with them. All right, so if you want me to be a, a God that's near, present with you, then there are stipulations to it, and this, this tent is going to be the, the means by which I, I can manifest myself among you and not and you not be killed. In, in, in other words, but more than that, it's, it's him showing them how to worship him. All right, that's it. That's the book of Exodus. Uh, here's what I think we should take out of, out of this. At least um, I, I think it's true. God saving Israel from Egypt is good news. That, that's, that's the story of, the, of, of Exodus. That's the, the story of redemption. We're going to see it as good news. It's good news that they're not enslaved anymore, but it's, it's going to be good news just not for them because we're reading the story and saying, well, good, good news for them. It's good news for us. 
And so we should keep ever present before us this picture that their story is mirror imaged with, with our story. God calls them out of those things that are enslaving them, and God does the same thing for us. He calls us out of, out from those things that are enslaving us so that we can have redemption. Good news for the church, good news for you and me. And I'm prayerful this will be a good series for you. Perhaps you know some people in your life, in your neighborhood, in your family that could use a little bit of redemption. Perhaps you should invite them to church, give them the podcast, tell them, you know what, you should probably listen to this because this, this might set you free. Let me pray. Father, thank you for um, this great book that we get to read. We thank you that you are firstly a redeeming God, that ultimately you sent your son Jesus to die for us, to redeem us. And he does that by dying in our place for our sin on a wicked cross that it takes that for redemption to come about in our lives. God, I pray that you would be with us during this series, that you would help our preaching team to articulate these, these great truths in clear ways that our congregation would get it, that we would feel the condemnation, not the condemnation, that we would feel the, um, really the, the, we would be challenged by the, the, the message of being enslaved to certain things in our life and that instead of condemnation, we would be welcomed by God's great grace into the freedom of the sons of God. God, I pray that you would do a work in our church through this series, that you would do a work in our community groups and especially the redemption groups that we will stand up. And then uh, let this spill over into the, our families and our neighborhoods. Lastly, Lord God, we do pray that Isaiah 55 would be true, that your word would not return void. God, that our time in this book would be fruitful and that, God, we, you would use it to, uh, to bring us into freedom, the freedom of the sons of God. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.